Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. Well, we've just heard two passages of scripture telling two stories that were separated from one another by about 730 years. The first story from the book of Isaiah tells us about the famous prophet Isaiah confronting a very wicked king named Ahaz, powerful and wicked. And then some seven centuries pass And we need to read another story, which is very different, about a poor carpenter named Joseph, who's probably in his early 20s, and his young fiancée named Mary, who's probably in her early to mid-teens, and the baby that they're going to have. But these two stories are connected to one another by the promise of God and by the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Everybody say, Emmanuel. When we put these two stories together and read them in connection, as Matthew clearly intends, we learn some very important lessons about waiting for the Lord. Throughout this Advent season, we've been saying that Advent is a time of hope, of waiting, and of preparation. And as we've mentioned, waiting can be very difficult. You don't need a preacher to tell you that, though. Who has found in your life that waiting is easy? Nobody? Show of hands. Who's found that waiting is hard? 
Okay. We all know that waiting can be hard. And today I want you to think about the fact that as disciples of Jesus who are trying to follow the Lord, very often we get ourselves into trouble precisely by failing to wait for the Lord. To wait means to trust God and to be patient, to obey the commandments of God, to walk with Jesus in the ways of Jesus, awaiting his deliverance instead of doing something foolish and often sinful to try and take matters into our own hands. Now, I'm going to ask you another question. We can be real. We can be honest. Who in here has done something dumb because you were impatient in your life? Okay, a lot of hands went up again. And church family, I'll say that over over the course of my spiritual life, even since I've come to know the Lord, a high percentage, not only of the foolish things that I've done, but of the sinful things that I've done, I confess are because I was failing to wait for the Lord. Here's what I mean. Have you ever been in a heated, difficult situation and you say something? That a little bit later you wish you could take back. Anybody ever done that? Very often in a difficult situation, I speak and what I say might even be true. But if I had been a little more patient and a little more dependent upon God and had slowed down and prayed and trusted, the Holy Spirit could have gave me something that was not only true, but helpful and filled with grace. We can think about financial decisions we may have made. Relationship decisions we may have made. Often we've acted impatiently trying to solve a problem in a foolish way instead of waiting, being patient, praying, trusting God. Some of you know what I mean from your own life, don't you? Many of the sins of anger or sins of self-indulgence really boil down to the fact I want to vindicate myself or gratify myself now instead of waiting for God to gratify my desires and satisfy my soul and vindicate me. I remember when I went out to college, my mama gave me some words of wisdom, not just me, but a few of my friends. We were all going out to college and we were all excited about getting degrees and following Jesus. But we were also excited about some other things, including finding a girlfriend, which we hope would be a wife. And my mama said to us, look, I know that you're thinking about all this, but as you're thinking about finding a woman in your life, just remember when she referred to the Bible story from Genesis. She said, just remember when Abraham waited on the Lord. He got Isaac, and when he was impatient, he got Ishmael. Now, if you know that story, what she was trying to say to us is, God's plan is better, church family. We've got to learn patience. We've got to learn faith. And one of the marks of spiritual maturity is the patience and the trust, which can hold fast to the promises of God during the painful period of satisfaction deferred. Of delayed fulfillment. Now, our texts today are going to help us with this in a complicated set of ways. Ahaz is for us a negative example. Ahaz does not wait for the Lord. He does not trust the Lord. He is self-reliant and impulsive in a way that does great damage. But then we're going to learn about generations of the remnant, the faithful children of God, leading up to and including Mary and Joseph, who do wait for the Lord. So let's just say from the beginning, church family, do we need some help learning how to wait for the Lord? Okay, let's bow our heads then and let's ask for the Holy Spirit to help us as we study the scriptures. 
Our Father, we thank you for all the goodness we've already celebrated today, that you sent Jesus, the Lord, to bring peace and salvation to the world. We thank you for what we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper, that the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ poured out for us means forgiveness of sins and life. And Lord, now as we're taking some time to study the scriptures, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Give us minds to understand, ears to hear, hearts to trust and obey. Lord, help me to speak words of life that are full of power from your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray, knowing that we're all coming here with different burdens and different challenges, I know there's probably some in here today that have not trusted and surrendered to Jesus, and I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I know there's many here who are already trusting Jesus, and yet we struggle so often with impatience and immaturity. I pray that your Holy Spirit would sanctify us in the truth today to make us a, a centered, patient people who know how to wait for the Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's attend to our two stories. Isaiah chapter 7, we picked up in verse 10, which says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, before we can really understand what this means, we've got to back up to kind of put ourselves in the context of what's happening here. And this week, if you want to study it out, you can go read all of Isaiah chapter 7 and you can go to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and read all about the life of Ahaz. But I'm just going to summarize it for you real quick. The prophet Isaiah ministered to four kings, okay? Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And three of those four kings were basically righteous and good kings. They were imperfect. They made mistakes, but they tried to trust the Lord. But Ahaz was very wicked. He was a very foolish king. He rejected the Lord. He went after all sorts of false gods. He worshipped Baal. In fact, he's the first of two kings in the line of David who went so far as to sacrifice his own children to pagan gods. Because he thought it would give him power. His son Manasseh, will do, his grandson Manasseh rather, will do the same thing. He's an evil, he's a wicked king. And in chapter 7 we find this foolish king trapped in a very difficult situation. Some of you will remember that the grandson of David, King Rehoboam, was also a foolish king. And during his time, the 12 tribes of the children of Israel were split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, okay? And that split has continued to the time of Ahaz, and Ahaz rules in Jerusalem over the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. But uh, in the north is Pekah, king of Israel, son of Remaliah, and he rules over the northern tribes of Israel, and the two are rivals. And Pekah has made an alliance with a, another king named Rezan, king of Syria. You don't need to remember all these names and places. Here's what you need to understand, though. Two kings have come and attacked Jerusalem, where King Ahaz lives, and they haven't been able to penetrate the walls of the city and kill everybody, but they have besieged the city so that in this situation, King Ahaz is under siege, which means the clock is ticking. Pretty soon his people are going to start starving to death and dying, or they're going to get desperate, or his enemies are going to penetrate the walls and they're going to get killed. It's a desperate Dangerous situation. And who knows that sometimes in desperate, dangerous situations, we do foolish things. These become times of testing. And God has appeared now. He has spoken rather through the prophet Isaiah. And amazingly, God in his mercy 
has come to Ahaz and says, I'm going to give you a chance to repent and I will save you from your enemies if you will trust me. Isn't God merciful, church family? And God, this is one of those moments of opportunity where somebody who's living in self-destructive sin gets another chance. Maybe there's somebody in the room today that God is speaking to you and this is your chance. If you've been living in self-destructive sin, but God is saying, I'll save you, I'll deliver you. Just come out of your sin and trust in me. But Ahaz isn't having it. Ahaz does not depend on the Lord. He doesn't trust the Lord. He refuses to wait for the Lord. Everybody say, wait for the Lord. In this case, waiting for the Lord would mean, believe the word of the prophet Isaiah, which says, God will deliver you if you trust in him. But Ahaz doesn't think that way. He's going to try and take things into his own hands. And so he sends out a messenger to make an alliance with another king, the king of Assyria. And and he says to the king of Assyria, I will pay tribute to you. I'll do whatever I can to get you to be on your team, to subject my people to you. If only you will come and deliver me from these two enemies of mine, Pekah, son of Remaliah, king in Samaria and uh, reason of the of the Syrians. He's not trusting in the Lord. He's. He's trusting in a political alliance. Now, can anybody testify? If you trust in politics to save you, how well does that usually work out? Psalm 146 says, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Already in Isaiah chapter two, verse 22, the prophet had said, uh, stop looking to men and being concerned about men in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he instead of trusting in. Political power or military power, economic power, we need to learn how to trust in the Lord. So what's happening here in verse 10 is that Isaiah is coming to Ahaz and he's he's really pleading with him. God is being patient and saying, Ahaz, I'll give you another chance. Ask a sign of the Lord. You see that in verse 11? Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Here's what's really happening. Isaiah is saying, or the Lord is saying through Isaiah, if you don't trust me, I will prove it to you. You can ask me to do a miracle for you to prove to you that I will deliver you. It could be as high as the heavens. You can ask for the sun to be blotted out like I did in Egypt. You can ask for the sun to stand still like I did for Joshua. It can be as low as the depths of Sheol, the place of the dead. You want me to raise the dead again like I did for the prophet Elisha? Any miracle you want, I will do it for you to prove to you that I have the power to deliver you. Now, church family, God doesn't say stuff like that very often. Okay. usually when people ask the Lord for a sign because they didn't trust what he just said, he gets a little annoyed. Sometimes he puts up with it in the cases of Gideon. Right. Or even Hezekiah. But sometimes he he rebukes him a little bit like he did for Zechariah. We should really just trust God's word. But here's a stubborn, foolish king. And God says, I will do a miracle to prove for you. Just name it. Just name it. But Ahaz is stubborn. He's not interested in the Lord. He doesn't want to trust God, but he responds in a way that is cloaked with hypocritical false piety. Look at verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Doesn't that sound very nice and pious? I will not put the Lord to the test. He's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Same passage that Jesus quotes when Satan was tempting him. But here's the difference. God just said, ask me for a sign. When is the one time you should ask God for a sign for sure? When God says, ask me for a sign. Okay, so his heart is not about 
trusting the Lord. He's already decided, I'm going to the king of Assyria for deliverance. So he's just trying to get rid of Isaiah and placate him. But Isaiah is not fooled. So verse 13, hear then, O house of David. He's reminding Ahaz of his forefather, the great King David, who knew how to trust in the Lord. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God says, you refuse to ask me for a miracle. You refuse to trust me. Well, I'm going to give you a miracle anyway. I'm going to give you a sign. And indeed, as we'll see, the sign that the Lord gives is higher than the heavens and deeper than Sheol. It's a profound and mysterious sign, which is speaking not only to the immediate situation of Israel, but to the hope of the whole world. And Isaiah says some strange, confusing things after this. He says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin. And of course, uh, if you've studied this passage, you know, this word could be just translated the young woman. The virgin, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's our key word. You might circle it. Everybody say Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. What does this sign mean? What is it talking about? Well, a few weeks ago when we started our Advent series in Isaiah, I told you that we need to be careful when we're interpreting the prophecies of Isaiah. Sometimes we ask questions that are a little too simplistic. And we tend to say, what event is Isaiah predicting? But often it's better to ask the question, what acts of God's salvation is he evoking here? And often there's multiple fulfillments over time. And that seems to clearly be the case in this situation. On one level, I think Isaiah is saying something like this. King Ahaz, if you look for a a young woman, a virgin, an unmarried woman, and she was to become pregnant tomorrow. And she was going to. Go through her nine months of pregnancy and have a baby. By the time the child came of age, he was able to reject the evil and choose the good, which probably refers to about the age of 12. Y'all heard of bar mitzvah, right? When the Jewish young men would come of age and be viewed as responsible adults. By that time, the two kings you're worried about, King Pekah and King Reason, are not even going to be on the map. They're not even going to be on the equation anymore. So far, so good. That sounds pretty good, right? But he's going to go on to explain, if you read the rest of chapter 7, those two kings that you're so scared of are not even going to be in the equation. But the king that you're calling on to defend yourself, Assyria, is going to become God's instrument of judgment on you because you would not trust the Lord. This is a sign of judgment and of grace. And of course, everything Isaiah says happens within about 12 years. The threat from Assyria and the threat from, I'm sorry, the threat from Syria and the threat from Israel is no longer uh, in the equation. But Assyria has become the big threat and it's going to subjugate the people and and they're basically going to become a vassal state that has to pay tribute to the Assyrians. But there's more going on here because we're not just told that there's any old baby going to be born. He shall be called what? Everybody say Emmanuel. So this raises the question, who is this Emmanuel, this child who's 
birth is a sign of God's presence. God's presence coming with judgment and with grace. To overthrow evil and to bring renewal to his people. Who is this child? Well, you could keep flipping in your Bible. When you got to chapter 8, you read about a baby who's going to be born to Isaiah. It's one of his child. He's, the virgin's going to conceive. The young woman's going to conceive and bear a son. And he's going to have a symbolic name and he's going to grow up. And, and you start thinking, well, maybe Emmanuel refers to the son of Isaiah. And then you keep reading and you get to chapter 9 and you read about another child being born. You think, oh, maybe this is the Emmanuel. You've, you've heard of this one. We read this one around Christmas time, too. You remember this from Isaiah 9? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. So now that sounds like a king, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like the son of a prophet. And we might start to think, okay, maybe this is Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz. He's going to be a righteous king. God's going to bring renewal and some level of deliverance through King Hezekiah. And he's a young man, except for Isaiah continues. Here's what he says. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called. Somebody knows what's his name going to be called. That's right. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. Now we're talking about something much deeper and much broader. We're talking about God himself coming in and with and through the Messiah, the child, the heir of David, to bring renewal to his people. Now, here's the truth. Hezekiah was born and he became a righteous king and he bought reform, but he was a very imperfect king and the Assyrians were still in control. And then his son Manasseh was a very wicked king and his son Josiah was a good king and so on and so forth. And it keeps being up and down and up and down until eventually the children of Israel are carried off into exile. They're made basically slaves, some of them. Many of them are removed from their homeland. They're longing to return home. The temple is destroyed. And they're reading the prophet Isaiah and they're trying to put the pieces together. What is this salvation? Who is the child? The whole government's going to rest on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace shall be no end. Where is this child? Where is the anointed one? Where is the Messiah? And in synagogues, they would open the prophet Isaiah and talk about it. Sometimes they would connect the dots between all these passages and sometimes they wouldn't. Many people began to lose hope because decades passed and then centuries passed. 100 years, 200 years. 300 years have passed and they're living in exile. Would it be easy to wait for the Lord at that time, friends? It would not be easy. And I imagine the children of Israel living in exile, reading Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, when it says the heir of David is going to be like a tender shoot who comes up from the stump of the house of David that has been cut down. And he's going to bring cosmic renewal so that the lion shall lie down with the lamb. And they're saying, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Everybody say, wait for the Lord. 500 years pass. 600 years pass. I imagine grandmothers and grandfathers gathering their grandchildren Around their knees, especially certain times of year like the Passover. And teaching them about the words of the prophets. And saying, God has made promises. There's a king coming. 
And some of them probably would have connected the dots. His name shall be Emmanuel, because he will be a sign of God's presence with his people. And he's going to deliver us. We're not going to be in exile anymore. He's going to bring peace to the earth. He's going to save us from our sins. And those little children hear that growing up. But then those children become teenagers and they become adults and they have kids and their kids have grandkids. And then they're sitting down. Now they're old people and they're saying, when I was a little kid, I sat at the feet of my grandmother and she taught me the words of the prophet Isaiah. Can you imagine this? Generation after generation after generation, the promise is passed on. 730 years pass. And we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 1. Look again at that text. It says, now the birth of Jesus. That's the name. That's the name we've been waiting for. Everybody say Jesus. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus the King, Jesus the Anointed One, took place in this way. And it goes on to describe... An obscure young woman named Mary. She's engaged to a young man named Joseph. And she becomes pregnant. But this is a unique pregnancy in the history of the world because she's a virgin. It's a miracle pregnancy. The Holy Spirit makes life appear in her womb. And Joseph finds out. I don't know if Mary told Joseph. I don't know if she, he just sees her becoming pregnant. We're not given so many of the details of this story, but Joseph finds out and Joseph is troubled. Wouldn't you be troubled, man? He knows that he has not been with Mary, so he assumes she's been unfaithful to him. He thinks I'm going to break off the engagement, but he's a merciful man. He doesn't want to put her to shame. So he's strategizing, but he doesn't rush impulsively. As a matter of fact, I love what it says about Joseph, verse 20, but as he considered these things, I, I described to you earlier that often I've sinned just by being impulsive instead of trusting and waiting for the Lord and considering what God wants. But Joseph is being patient here. He's waiting for the Lord. He's not acting impulsively in revenge. He's considering. And as he's considering, thinking, no doubt praying, we read in verse 20, that an angel appeared to him in a dream, and he said, Joseph, son of David. Now, those three words are important. Everybody say, son of David. I guarantee you, Joseph does not think of himself as son of David. Okay, Joseph is a carpenter. He's got calloused hands. He works. He lives from paycheck to paycheck. Just like many of us in this room. And... Matthew has already told us that you can trace the legal line for a thousand years from David, the king to whom God made a promise. One of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever, all the way to Joseph, the poor carpenter. But Joseph just thinks Joseph is a carpenter. And suddenly an angel appears. That's already enough to freak somebody out. But the angel says, Joseph, son of David. Signifying the promise of God is about to be fulfilled. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle, baby. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. 
And the angel is saying to Joseph, this is not your biological child. This is a miracle baby that's come from God. And you're, you're going to raise this child as your legal heir. And he will be the king who we've been waiting for, who has come to save his people. And then Matthew adds this amazing little statement. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is saying this. The prophet of the prophecy of Isaiah had a short term, immediate meaning, had a proximate referent. It it meant that within a few years, Syria and Israel are not going to be a threat. And but then the king of Assyria is going to come. But Isaiah was also pointing to something bigger and further beyond. There may have been a a child born, Isaiah's son or Ahaz's son, who was a sign of God's presence. But Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Friends, if we're going to celebrate Christmas rightly, here's what we need to understand. There's some nativity scenes around the church. There's one right here. There's one right there. It used to be right here, but we had the Lord's Supper today. There's nativity scenes around town, maybe at your house. During the Christmas season. And when you look at one of those, you look at the little baby in a manger. And here's what Matthew is saying. The baby in the manger is God. The baby in the manger is God. Is God coming near? God with us. God for us. Can you wrap your mind around that? Let's just ponder. Let's let's pause and think for a second. This year, when you see a nativity scene, when you see a manger, that little baby is a human baby. Baby Jesus is totally dependent on Mary, the God bearer, to feed him, to clothe him, to wrap him in swaddling cloths so he won't get sick at night. And at the same time, that baby is the radiance of the glory of God who upholds Mary and Joseph and the whole universe By the word of his power. Who is the baby in a manger? He is God. He he transcends all limitations of time and space. And yet he has taken unto himself a finite human nature. So at this point in space time, God becomes one with humanity in a new way. Who is the baby in the manger? The almighty one. Who creates everything from nothing by his word has taken unto himself human weakness for us and for our salvation. He is Emmanuel, God with us. What does it mean? Isaiah keeps talking about the Lord of hosts. That means the commander of millions of angels, mighty warriors. But now Matthew is saying the commander of angel armies has clothed himself like a servant. What is the the meaning of that nativity scene? Matthew is saying the baby in the manger is the holy one, the consuming fire in whose presence no evil can endure. And yet he has come and taken on a human nature so that in his flesh he can bear our sin, my guilt, your shame, so that on the cross he can defeat Satan and sin forever. 
so that we can become the righteousness of God. Matthew is saying the baby in the manger is God in human flesh, one person in two natures for us and for our salvation. What is the meaning of that for us? Well, there's so much we can say. This changes everything. This changes everything because the manger can't be separated from the cross of Jesus Christ where he died for our sins, from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, he came from higher than heaven and descended to Sheol, the place of the dead for us, and raised again and was exalted to the right hand of his father. That's the sign, Emmanuel. The manger cannot be separated from the second coming of Jesus. When he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead, to overthrow evil and to make all things new, it changes everything. But if we want to make it really simple, we could say it like this. Friends, if we want to understand how to live wisely, we must know there is no hope besides Jesus. But Jesus is a sure and certain hope. He cannot fail. This Advent season, why do we wait for the Lord? Well, we wait for the Lord because every other disappointment will fail. There is no other hope but Jesus. But Jesus is a sure and certain hope. Only he could save his people from their sins. And we could get specific here. Some of us just think everything's going to be okay if we get a little more money. Anybody had money problems lately? Lately, I would raise both hands, but I got a microphone. We just think we'll get a little more money. Has anybody ever found that when you got that raise, your life problems were solved? If you put your hope in money, it will disappoint you. If you put your hope in government or politics, it will disappoint you. If you put your hope in finding that perfect boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, they definitely going to disappoint you. A lot of the marriage counseling that we do is about, hey, they never could have saved you, right? We've got to give each other grace. Some of us are putting our hope in ourselves. If I just achieve enough, if I just get that degree or I get that job or achieve enough success, then everything's going to be okay. Some of us are trying, we, we, we went to the whole self-help section at Barnes & Noble, right? And we, we're mindful, you know what I'm saying? We go to our therapist, we practice self-care, and we're still a mess. Amen, church family? If we put our hope in ourselves or in anything other than Jesus, it will disappoint us. What we're trying to say is, there is no hope except for Jesus, Emmanuel. But Jesus is a sure and certain hope, which means no matter how much you have sinned, no matter how hard life is right now, no matter what you're going through, if today you put your faith in Jesus, you have the certain assurance of everlasting life in the kingdom of God. If you put your faith in Jesus, you can know your sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. You are a child of God and nothing can separate you from his love, which means we also need to learn to live by hope and to wait for the Lord. We just talked about the children of Israel waiting for 700 years, but the Christian community is a waiting community. How long have we been waiting for the second coming of Jesus? Two thousand years. Have you thought about the fact that in a few years we're going to hit the 2,000 year anniversary of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's going to be awesome. Party. We'll have a great Easter that year. 2,000 years, though, we've been waiting for Jesus to return. And 
Some people are losing hope. Some of us are having a hard time waiting. We're thinking maybe Jesus isn't really going to solve our problems. And if he's not, we can either just give in with despair or we could say, I'm going to take it into my own hands and I'm going to solve my problems. And we try some stuff and it doesn't work. Everybody say, wait for the Lord. Understand, church family, waiting for the Lord is not mean being passive. Waiting for the Lord means this, living today in a way that makes no sense if I am not certain that Jesus will return. Did you catch that? Somebody needs to write that down and meditate on it this week leading up to Christmas. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? Waiting for the Lord means living today in a way that makes no sense unless I'm certain that Jesus will return and keep all of his promises. That means waiting for the Lord is not passive, it's active. Waiting for the Lord is about persevering prayer. Waiting for the Lord is about active, steadfast love. It's about resilient faith that rejoices in God and gives thanks in all circumstances. It's about showing up to serve our community and to proclaim the gospel of peace week after week, year after year, in the glorious times and in the very difficult times because we know that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Waiting is not passive, but it does mean we're not going to venture into sin and folly to try and take things into our own hands because our only hope is Jesus Christ, the King. Now, I'm almost done here today, church family. But as we get ready for Christmas, I want to create a little space right now for us to hear from God, because I do believe that all of us need to learn in this season what it means to wait for the Lord. So I want to invite you right now just to bow your head with me. And I'm going to be silent for a few moments. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you. What is it that you might be depending on this this week, this Advent season? What are the false hopes that you might be trusting in? Because our text confronts us today with this question. You can keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. But I want you to think about this. Am I going to be like Ahaz? Who foolishly tries to take things into my own hands? Or am I going to be like the faithful remnant for all those generations leading up to Mary and Joseph who trusted the promise of God, even when it was very difficult and painful? And just ask the Lord to show you right now what are the things that you're trusting in? What are your hopes and what it could look like to recenter them on Jesus today?
Church family, as I'm standing here praying, the Holy Spirit is bringing things to my mind that I have a tendency to put too much trust and hope in. And if that's happening for you, I just want you to know God's not God's conviction doesn't mean he's against you. It means the opposite. He means he's for you. And God's invitation to you today is to cease from the anxiety and the fretting of trusting in things that cannot save you and to rest in the assurance that God will save you. That's the invitation. And in just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer for you. But I, I want to urge you, if the Lord is touching your heart today, to call you to maybe repent of some false hopes and to recenter in Him, setting your hope on Christ alone this morning. Don't just let this slide by. Do something with it. Maybe it's writing it down right now. Maybe during this last song, you want to come to the altar and kneel. Just confess your sin to the Lord and your need for the Lord. Maybe you want to come talk to a pastor or a friend before you leave here today and get somebody praying with you. But there's freedom. There's freedom that comes when we surrender completely to the Lord. So I want to invite you to stand with me now. I'm going to say a prayer for you before we sing this last song. Our Father in heaven. We thank you for your holy word that we've been meditating on, which always proves true. Everyone who trusts in the word of the Lord is safe. And I want to pray for myself and everybody in this room and everybody who's in the chapel and in children's church and everybody who's joining us online through the live stream today. Would you help us not to be like Ahaz, who fell to trust in the Lord, but to be like Mary and Joseph, who lived by Simple, radical faith that the word of the Lord would prove true. Lord, wherever we put our hopes in lesser things, we repent. And we come back to you again with the absolute assurance that Jesus is our hope. And he's a hope that will not fail. Lord, for everyone in this room who is weary and heavy laden, Lord, I just pray that that last word would be a word of life and refreshing today. God, you love the weary and the heavy laden. All who will humbly cry out to you, help us, Lord. You will answer them and you will strengthen them and you will sustain them. So I pray even now and as we sing this last song, that your Holy Spirit would be reawakening our hope and our assurance of your loving care for us. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.